Hey, Grace Church, my name is Rick. It's great to be with you uh, here. And I want you to know that my wife, Sharon, and I have been at our church for 23 years now. So we are truly the veterans. I work in college campus ministry, and I am a busy guy. I've got writing projects. I've got travel. Well, not travel lately, but normally I travel for our ministry to college campuses. And I've got other projects going. And so uh, during the week, it's uh, running pretty fast most weeks. And then when it comes to Sunday, the, the day of rest, the day of Sabbath, I have a hard time slowing down. And maybe you can relate to that. Maybe that's your life as well. Run, 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 run. And then on Sunday, you're supposed to just stop. And it's, it's hard to do. When I was growing up in Marshall, Minnesota, a small town America, we were taught to be productive and to work hard. So when the Sabbath comes, I still want to work hard. I want to catch up on work. And of course, that's not what the calling is there. Uh, so maybe you feel the same way. And uh, I can remember a few years ago uh, when I went and visited my mom in Fort Myers. Uh, I walked off the plane in Florida and the warm air and the sunshine hit me. This is during spring break. And I just went like this. Because <sighs> I was so tired. I was so fatigued, but I didn't even realize how tired I was. And I think that's a pretty common experience for us uh, here in America, in this culture. So how about you? Is that something that happens to you as well? You run, run, run during the week. And then on the weekend, or especially on Sundays, you have a hard time slowing down. Well, our verses in Psalm 23 provide a remedy for that. It addresses it directly, and that's why I'm so excited about this text today and drawing us into it. But there is a condition. There's a condition that must be met before we can gain the benefit of these verses in Psalm 23, and I'll share that condition with you in a few minutes. But now, let's uh, read the text. So just the first three verses here. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. And uh, after those verses, let's pray together. Lord God, would you be with our church this weekend and those who might be uh, visiting our church this weekend online? Would you speak to us through the power of your word and the power of your spirit? And may it go out, Lord, to us and through us, Lord, to the world and we ask in Jesus' name. Well, last week, uh, Pastor Bob Bryce uh, talked about uh, uh, several things, and I just wanted to mention three as a reminder. Number one is that sheep are helpless. We're going to be talking about sheep today. And when sheep are in the wilderness, they need a shepherd to survive. Secondly, this passage talks about green pastures. And the green pastures that we're talking about here are not the lush Minnesota or uh, Irish green pastures you might think about. This is in ancient Israel. This is in the brown wilderness, and there's just clumps of grass that the sheep need to find, but they can't do it on their own. They need a shepherd to help them find them. And then thirdly, I wanted to remind us uh, that Bob helpfully talked to us about uh, which shepherd are we actually listening to? Is it the good shepherd mentioned in this passage, or is it the other shepherds of our culture that lead us astray way too often? Uh, well, David was a shepherd, and David was actually a shepherd twice in his life. The first time, he's a shepherd of uh, real sheep, and he does this when he's a boy. He's a herder of sheep. He's got older brothers. They do other things. He's kind of 
a low man in the family, so he's stuck with that job. But then secondly, he becomes a shepherd, you might say, of a whole nation, that being Israel. Now, Psalm 78 gives us a way to transition between his first duties as shepherd and his second duties as king slash shepherd. And here's what Psalm 78 uh, says. God chose David, his servant, and took him from the sheep folds. From following the nursing ewes, he brought him to shepherd Jacob, his people, Israel, his inheritance. With upright heart, he shepherded them and guided them with a skillful hand. So think about that. He's a shepherd of sheep, and then he's a shepherd of a nation. And I can just imagine, as difficult as it was for a boy to shepherd some sheep, how much harder it would be for David, the grown man, to shepherd a whole nation. Well, now the irony is, after having been a shepherd twice, now he's a sheep. Think about that, of the kind of the paradox of being both a shepherd and a sheep at the same time. Now, why would he stoop to being a sheep? Because if he has a recollection of what sheep are really like from his boyhood, why would he want to join the herd or the flock, whatever we're calling them? Why would he want to be one of them? After all, he's a very capable leader. Uh, he's the one who inherited the kingdom from Saul in a very complex transition. He's the one who served as a general for the armies of Israel to go out and defeat the Philistines. He's the one who oversees and administers a whole nation. And don't forget about the family drama, the soap opera inside David's family with Absalom and Adonia and those who tried to take the throne from him. So he's a very uh, capable and excellent and wise leader. Why would he need God? Why would he need to be a sheep with a shepherd? He's probably the most powerful man during that time period in the ancient Near East. And we're talking about a thousand years before the time of Christ. That's when David uh, was in power. It reminds me in our own country of Abraham Lincoln. Uh, Abe Lincoln, 16th president of the United States. And in 1863, Abraham Lincoln made a declaration about a national day of prayer. And that day would be April 30th of that year. And here's some of the language that uh, Lincoln used to declare this uh, day of prayer. He said, we need to have a time of humiliation, fasting, and prayer. Now, why would Lincoln do that? He's a man of wisdom. We know that from the literature, from history. He's a powerful man. Why would Lincoln need all that? Well, he understood that he needed a shepherd. He needed God to guide him. They were in some hard times. You think we're in hard times now. They're facing civil war where the country is even more divided than, than, what, than what it is now, if that's possible. And he too, like David, was one of the most powerful men uh, of his time period. And yet Lincoln says, I can't go through this without God. Our nation can't go through this without God. And folks, for me personally, this really came home a few months ago. I was working at Rice University in Houston, Texas, and they scheduled me to do a public dialogue with a Muslim leader. Uh, his name is Fahad Taslim, and he's very articulate. So on a Tuesday, Fahad and I sat down and we had a two hour lunch. We got acquainted with each other and had a nice time. And then Wednesday night was the event where there were going to be a bunch of Muslims in the room, Christians in the room, atheists and other folks. And we we're going to give this presentation and we we're going to go back and forth. Now, I know that this is in my wheelhouse and I'm gifted for this. And the Lord has given me ability to do these sorts of things. 
But before the event, I went before him and I said this, Lord, I got nothing. I need you to be my shepherd, even though I feel like I'm gifted for this work. Uh, I want to give this into your hands. That's what David did. That's what Lincoln did. And that's what we're called to do. But the temptation is for us not to do that. You probably feel like you're gifted in several areas of your life. You're gifted as a leader or as a worker or as an artist. And the temptation is to say, well, I've got these gifts. I'm capable. And so we just do them on our own. And we really never have to become a sheep. But I want you to become a sheep with me. And here, look at this prop. You and I are going to enter sheephood right now because that's how we gain the benefit of this psalm. And that's the condition for uh, entering this psalm. So here it is. Uh, here's sheephood. <laughs> There's my sheepification right there. Now, this uh, sheep on a stick was made by my grandson, Isaiah, who is eight years old. And uh, we all agree that we're going to be sheep when we read this psalm. And that's the condition that we have to meet <laughs> in order to uh, enter into the psalm and gain the benefit that is, uh, gained, uh, that is waiting for us there. So verse 2 says, he makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. So green pastures, as we mentioned before, it's not these lush green pastures we think of here in Minnesota, but uh, some more brownish green pastures, just clumps of grass that the shepherd is leading the sheep to. But David uses this word, God makes me lie down in green pastures. Now, why would he use the word makes? Well, I think it's because uh, it's hard to make sheep lie down. David thinks back to his boyhood and he remembers, yeah, I could never get those sheep to lie down. They're so finicky. They're so fussy. They have to feel relational harmony. Imagine that. Sheep have to feel uh, secure in order to lie down. And David probably feels a sense of resistance in his own heart to lying down. And so he says, the Lord makes me lie down in green pastures. And so there's an element of trust here. He's trusting that the Lord knows best for him of what to do with these green pastures and uh, to gain the nourishment there and to gain even survival in the wilderness. The Lord makes me lie down in green pastures because the Lord knows best. Second image then is he leads me beside still waters. And here in Minnesota, we have the awesome privilege of having access to a lot of still waters. I've had the chance many times, I hope you have as well, to sit on a boat in a secluded bay in Minnesota in the evening and the sun is going down and you can hear the crickets and the frogs and the water is smooth as glass and oh, there's a heron flying by. And the fish are coming up to the surface and nosing the top of the surface. And occasionally you might catch a crappie or a bass or a, a sunfish might be biting that night. And it's just a beautiful, warm uh, a setting. And I guess it's the warmth and the, the calm and the peace of the setting that brings a calm and a peace into our souls. It brings it into our hearts. And I think that's what David envisions here. When he comes beside the still water, the still water is calm and peaceful, and that brings a calm and a peacefulness into his own being. And that's why the Lord has him there, to experience something different, to slow down from his duties as king. 
Well, Jeremiah says, Jeremiah 17 says that the Lord himself is a fountain of living water. Uh, so water, still water, is often associated in the scripture with spirit and with nourishment. So if the Lord himself is a living water, then we get an expanded picture of what this can be. We don't just experience the external living uh, uh, waters, but the Lord himself, when we draw near to the Lord himself, we can experience the living water that comes out from him into our lives. And then Jesus in John 7 promises, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. So friends, can you see how Psalm 23 is a, is a remedy for this frantic pace that, in which we lead our lives? Uh, there's a kind of intensity to our lives. And sometimes I feel like we're just on the hamster wheel. You're going around and round and round. You're really busy and you wonder what it's all about. And Psalm 23 says, stop. Psalm 23 says, slow down. I am the Lord. I uh, offer you this living water. And if you will come and lie down in the pastures and take part in the still waters and the living water that I provide, your life will change. It will be remodeled. And then the next vision here is you restore my soul. Well, this part, it expands and our whole body gets involved uh, with the soul. Soul in Hebrew means uh, Eunice. It's your entire self. It's uh, nephesh. The Hebrew word here is nephesh. It means your lifeblood, body and soul. So for century, good Jews have been praying the Shema from Deuteronomy 6, and it says there, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, all your nephesh. Okay, everyone, let's stop right now. With me, say nephesh. One, two, three. Nephesh. All of your heart, all of your soul, and with all your might. And then Psalm 42, as the deer pants for flowing streams, so my soul, my nephesh, <laughs> Pants for you, O oh God. So the soul in Hebraic thought, Hebraic theology, is not just this immaterial substance that rattles around inside my body. It's not that at all. It's not a ghost in the machine. Rather, uh, the soul in Hebrew thinking is uh, the whole self. So when David says, you restore my soul, he's saying, well, I guess you restore my David. You restore my, my meanness. My entire self, uh, head to toe, my body, my mind, my emotions, my spirit. You rejuvenate me. You recreate me. You remodel me. And what an awesome opportunity it is to have the Lord do that work in us. And it is a deep work of the soul that goes way beyond the self-help techniques of our culture. I'm not against self-help. It's a fine thing for us to increase our life skills. That's a cool thing. I think what David is talking about here goes much deeper. It goes to the very foundation of our life. If you're watching this today, I want to issue a challenge for you. If you're not a Christian, if you haven't invited Christ into your life uh, to be your Lord, to be your shepherd, I want to invite you to do that today. It's so important. And if you want to gain the benefit of the Lord working in your life to reshape and to remodel and to uh, put his living waters flowing through you, 
If you want that for your life, I would encourage you, place your faith in him today. Folks, rest and restoration, these are big themes in the Bible. You think about uh, uh, Genesis 1, where God created the world in six days, and then what did he do on the seventh day? He rested. Now, why did God need to rest? Is it that he's all tuckered out? Not at all. God doesn't need to rest, but he did rest because he modeled something for us. He modeled the good life for us. He modeled what it means to be created in his image because life for God uh, consists of at least two main parts. One is work and one is rest. So he works for six days and then he rests on the seventh day. So the writer of Hebrews then says, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest. So the Lord has laid out for us a place of rest. And he said, come into that rest and enjoy it with me. Experience it with me because I'm all about work and I'm all about rest. It's a both and. And then Jesus says in Matthew 11, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So this is cover to cover in the Bible. You've got the Old Testament version of rest. Here in the New Testament, Jesus uh, picks up on it as well and even expands it. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And let me just give you a suggestion here. This isn't in the passage, but I think you'll find it in David's life, especially if you dig around in Psalm 51. And that is David, uh, during his lifetime, he fell into sin uh, with Bathsheba, the woman of Bathsheba. And so when we come into the Lord's presence, it's the Sabbath. We're trying to slow down. I think one of the best ways to slow down is when we enter his presence is to confess our sins, is to say to the Lord, uh, I think there's stuff, st some stuff in my life that shouldn't be there and lay out for those, uh, those things for the Lord. For David, uh, he laid out his uh, sin, he named it, and he received the Lord's forgiveness. And Psalm 51, we're not going to take time to read it, but it does say, you created me a clean heart and you renew a right spirit within me. And that's what happens when we confess our sins, when we enter his presence. So by way of application, I think this whole first section we're talking about here, it's sort of God's care station. You can imagine us running a marathon, and then there are these care stations along the route, and they happen every six days. Of course, they can happen a microcosm every, maybe every morning or evening when we take a few minutes to have a quiet time with the Lord. But especially on the Sabbath, we take advantage of this care station. And I want to ask you, will you be led? This is a condition of the psalm. Will you become a sheep? Will you go to the green pastures and quiet waters? Uh, will you slow down? Can we make a pact together that we are going to slow down and we are going to take Sabbath? Now, when I take Sabbath, I have a kind of rest inventory that I've given to myself. So hopefully you can see that on the screen. I say yes to reading. And for me, whether it's academic reading or I'm reading uh, fiction like uh, Louis L'Amour uh, Western novels, or I'm doing some hiking or a little bit of golfing on the weekend, uh, praying, reading scripture. Uh, I'm doing some projects around the house that get me away from work. Those are all yes 
to my inventory of rest. That's when I can rest well. Now there's some no's as well. Things where I don't rest well is when I'm catching up on work from the prior week or I'm trying to get ahead uh, for the coming work week. That's not good rest for me. That's saying to the Lord, oh, I'm really not taking a Sabbath. I don't trust you for my work. I need to get on top of it. Or really, let's just be honest here, extended time, binging in front of the TV, it's not restful for me, and it probably isn't for you as well. Psalm 46 says, be still and know that I am God. And folks, if we really want to hear the voice of God and enter his presence, we will enter quietude, and we will reduce the noise and get out of the culture that's so demanding on us. It's hard to hear his voice when there's so much static around us. But if we take the time to quiet ourselves and go before him in scripture and prayer and fellowship with others, and there's a kind of quiet, we can hear his voice. And when we hear the voice of the Lord, we are transformed into his image. And I just find that so exciting. So what we're going to do right now is practice. I know this is radical. We're going to practice the presence of God. So for the next 30 seconds, we are going to have nothing happen on camera. And you shouldn't do that. I mean, that's one of the rules. When you're on camera or you're on radio, you never want to have dead air. We're going to break that rule right now. And we're going to practice the presence of the Lord just for 30 seconds. So I'm going to ask you to bow your head in just a moment. And all we're going to do is uh, be quiet before him and soak up the living water and soak up uh, being near him in this green pasture. So here we go. The radical step, dead air for 30 seconds. Ready, set, go. Wow, if you were sitting in my chair right now, <laughs> uh, that seemed like an eternity to me, honestly. Probably at home, it didn't feel that way, but there's no audience here in the studio where we're uh, filming this. So it felt like a long time, but I just want you to practice, and I want you to know that if you go into a quiet place, you can hear the voice of the Lord. Uh, verse 3, then, the end of verse 3 says, He leads me in paths of righteousness for His namesake. Notice the two components here. Uh, paths of righteousness. Uh, a righteousness and for his namesake. So we have a, an image. Uh, my wife Sharon went with uh, Sandy Stagabird from our church two years ago to Israel and took this picture of sheep uh, going across the mountain. And you'll notice on the picture that the sheep are on paths. There's these horizontal paths going across the mountain. And if you look down to the right, you can see that they're following a shepherd. So David must have had this in mind when he said, he guides me in paths of righteousness. Us sheep follow these little roads across the mountain, but it's paths of righteousness. Uh, there's a moral component here. The Bible calls us to godly living. The scripture says, be holy for I am holy. The Lord is holy and our lives should reflect the character and the virtues of who God is. But it's not just that. Uh, the scripture here takes it to another level. And it says there's an end point. 
There's a goal. There's a target. There's a direction where the sheep are going. We're aiming at something, and that something is the glory of his name. So Revelation 4 talks about that, and it says, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. And then Psalm 29, Ascribe to the Lord the glory do his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness, the glory of God. When I travel around to college campuses around the country, students will often ask me, why is God so much into his own glory? Shouldn't he be humble? <laughs> Shouldn't he be, why does he need our worship? That's one of the questions that they often ask. And my response is usually something like, well, he sort of can't help it. He is glorious. Uh, to deny that would be a false humility. Folks, I have zero interest in worshiping some uh, local tribal deity, some puny god. But the God given to us in Scripture is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the glorious God of the universe who is the creator. And this, you know the old saying, the bigger they are, the harder they fall. Well, in this case, the bigger they are, the lower they stoop. So think of the gap between the glorious God and the incarnate Lord Jesus who came to be a babe in a manger, who experienced that farm animals and who experienced riding on a donkey into Jerusalem and who experienced the humiliation of the cross. That's the God that we worship, the glorious God who came to be one of us. So when David says, uh, he leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake, it's for his namesake. Now, can we be a good person without God? That's what uh, my atheist friends say, or ex-Christians I know, they'll say, oh, I can be a good person without God. Well, in scripture, that's not even the point. The point is not to be a good person. The point is to glorify God. And being a good person is just a byproduct of glorifying God with our lives. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake, for his glory. And as we worship him and we serve him for his glory, we too are swept up into his glory. And I just find that so exciting. And it's embedded as a little jewel here in this Psalm. So by way of application here in this last part, I want to ask you a question. Uh, the compass is pointed toward the glory of God, and I want to ask you, how's your compass? Is it pointed toward the glory of God for his namesake? Or are you just trying to be a good person? Maybe just using God to be a good person. That sounds kind of harsh. I hate asking myself that question. Rick, are you just using God to have a better life here? Or is your God really, or is your life really pointed toward God and glorifying him? That would be a subtle but important difference here that uh, the psalmist is pointing out. So we're going to practice this again. We practiced it a little while ago of taking 30 seconds uh, to soak up the Lord's presence. Now we're going to take 30 seconds and I want you to ponder this thought. Is my life lived for the glory of God. Is that my main purpose in life? That's what we're going to ponder here for the next 30 seconds.
So uh, with all the power I can muster up here in this studio, and you're all sitting out in your homes, I'm going to ask you to bow with me. And we're going to have dead air, radical dead air, for another 30 seconds. This shouldn't be, but we're going to do it anyway. We're going to break the rules and just ask this question of ourselves. Are we living our lives for the glory of God? Let's go before him. Let's pray together as we close this uh, silent period of prayer. Lord God, we come before you, and I just pray for our church, Lord, as we are gathered together here this weekend. Lord God, would you give us the ability and the motivation to live our lives for you, for your glory? Would you give us the humility that it takes to see ourselves as sheep, <laughs> lowly sheep in need of a shepherd? And Lord God, that would be a fantastic vision for our church if we came before you and we allowed you to lead us as a whole church uh, uh, to be shepherded that way. We are your flock and we submit ourselves to you now to live our lives for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So folks, I, pr I pray and hope that you would join me and that you'd be willing to be a sheep. This is our uh, sheepification and join the herd. And if I may sum up some of the things we've said here. Uh, number one, we as a church, we work hard. That's what the Lord did in six days. He worked hard. And then secondly, he rested. Now the world tells us to work hard, play hard. The Bible tells us work hard, rest well. And the third component is to live our lives for his glory. So work hard. <laughs> rest well, live our lives for his glory. Now that's a church I want to be part of, a church that does that. And that's a church that will make a difference in our lives and will make a difference out there in the world as we go out and share the good news with others. In Jesus' name, amen.